0: This is, was it the third week of May?
1: It is. It is indeed. And you've been busy. This has been a very busy week. And, uh, and it started out uh, on a really, really sour note because Monday's first commentary was The Death Star Destroys Democracy.
0: That's the story you told actually in our last podcast as well. Yes. The podcast being This Week in Common Sense, starring you, Paul Jacob, and this is where we cover the stories that appear this week in ThisIsCommonSense.org, which you write five days a week. So all that stuff, we can get it right out of the way, right at the beginning. And wait a second. Aren't you Timothy Berkula? Yeah, I've been told that. <laughs> but other <the> other <laughs> names have been selected for me and by me.
1: <laughs> You've been accused of that.
0: Yes. Anyway, so this is a big story that you, that came out last Friday, and then you finally wrote about it here for the Monday piece.
1: Yes, and, and as you point out, we went into this in in a little bit of detail. I actually got a couple of little small details incorrect last week, but of course I had heard about it. I didn't have a chance to really bone up on the uh, Mississippi initiative process. I had just heard about it before we started taping. And in case somebody, you know, in case there's someone in America who didn't see last week's podcast, um, the state of Mississippi did has an initiative process for, had an initiative process it has been used it was used to do a ballot measure to legalize medical marijuana in the state uh, which you know now most of the states have and someone challenged it and they challenged it on the basis that the initiative process itself had not been properly set up and there was a big fly in the ointment and here's the fly in the ointment when they set up the initiative process they said that you could not get more than one-fifth of your signatures from any congressional district which since there were five congressional districts meant you had to you had to basically get the full amount in each congressional district in order to qualify but in 2000 and last week i had thought it was 2010 census it was actually the 2000 census they changed the number of congressional representatives that Mississippi gets because of population gains other places and losses in Mississippi, and they went to four. And so if you can only get one-fifth of the necessary signatures from any district and you only have four districts, (laughs) it is mathematically impossible to qualify an initiative. Now, what happened is after that, course, the legislature should have taken quick action to rectify a problem. But legislators don't want to rectify our problems, especially if the problem we have not having an initiative process that functions in any sensible way is kind of a boon to them because they don't want us to check their power. They don't want us to overrule them or end run around them. So for 20 years, there has been this glaring problem. Now, Secretary of State and Attorney General, they get together and say, hey, let's just keep the, the, the old congressional map with five districts and give that to people who want a petition to put a measure on the ballot, and that should solve the problem. Well, Mississippi Supreme Court ruled that did not solve the problem. And I can see some rationale there. These five districts are not going to be You know, uh, not necessarily going to be the right population districts over time. And and uh, and so and it did mention congressional districts. And of course, they aren't the current congressional districts. Now, I suspect on a lot of things, the court would have found a way to kind of hold it all together. But again, I don't expect the Mississippi Supreme Court to be much different than other state Supreme Courts. And they're very hostile to citizen democracy, to direct democracy and the citizen check on government. And they're very favorable to the establishment. Uh, that's, that's the truth in almost every state.
0: And wouldn't it have been reasonable just to say, to declare unconstitutional that stupid requirement for one fifth or even one quarter of the district? I mean, that's very close to being really, really a high hurdle that there's really no reason to uphold, right? What's the reason for it?
1: They wanted to reflect every part of the
0: state but that's a strict reflect in, in five districts to say none more than a fifth. That makes no sense whatsoever. In five districts, it makes more sense to none more than a third or something.
1: Right. Right. You could see some some. Uh, the, the other thing is it is an absurd requirement when you only have four congressional districts. It's a completely absurd requirement. And you would think that the court might have looked at it and said, well, that's absurd. We can't enforce absurd rules. I mean, what if they had miswritten it to say you can only do an initiative if 50 people are, you know, executed at sunrise? Well, I don't think the court would have said, yep, that's what you have to do. I mean, it'd be insane. And this is an insane requirement. The court could have ruled differently. But the court did what it did. And to me, it points up the real problem in our society and that is we are a representative democracy that just doesn't have any representation and it's a big problem for 20 years this process is screwed up by by this one little thing and the legislature never gets together and fixes it that tells me they're not representing the people of Mississippi, they're representing somebody else, and uh, so anyway, I think you're going to see if I have anything to do with it, and I hope I do. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna fight in Mississippi, and we're gonna push the, that legislature to permit the people they represent to have the power to check their power, and it will be you know I- until that day comes, people will know. Mississippi's legislature is not representative of the people of Mississippi. It is an illegitimate body until it fixes this problem. And, uh, and I think you'll also see a battle against those legislators blocking this change coming from the left and the right and the middle and everywhere, because there've been a number of things uh, that have been changed by the initiative process uh, that have widespread support across all spectrums. And there are things that the conservative pro-life movement wants to do. There are things that liberal folks want to do. And, and in Mississippi, I think they would, I don't really see medical marijuana as a left-right issue, but they would probably see it as more left. Uh, they changed the state flag by initiative. Uh, by uh, and, and I think that may end up... Um, you know, being thrown out as well. And now they've got to go through that again.
0: Is Did we use the state flag in the image for that uh, episode? Yes, yes. So they have In God We Trust with a flower on it. Is that?
1: A magnolia. Yes, it's the magnolia state.
0: Oh, okay. Well, so that's, that's things I don't know about the South. There's a lot I don't know about the South. And that was one of them.
1: Well, I, I grew up in Arkansas, and, and uh, since we always had the saying, thank God for Mississippi, because Arkansas might be 49th and something, but there was Mississippi at 50th. And I have several friends, I have friends from Mississippi, but I have several friends from Alabama who said, that's funny because we said the same thing. <laughs> so, so poor Mississippi was, you know, Alabama and Arkansas were kind of leaning on, on Mississippi to come in last. The truth is, because Mississippi has this initiative process, or had, and hopefully will have again, it is a more dynamic state than the, the, the other southern states that lack this process. And uh, I, I remember moving from Arkansas in 1990 uh, to Washington and thinking, you know, in Virginia, where I was going to be living outside of Washington, Virginia is probably a more, you know, I didn't think much of the, of the uh, robust political system in Arkansas. Virginia is probably a more competitive, robust political system. Boy, was I wrong. And the big difference is that in Arkansas, if the legislature, which is, I think, one of the worst legislatures in the history of the world, uh, if the legislature doesn't do what the people want, or does things that the people don't want, there is at least an initiative process, which just as an aside, well, we've frozen. The bottom line is that Mississippi has just been stripped of a tremendous citizen check on government. And there's a real question about whether they'll be able to get it back whether they have enough control on their legislature to get back this process that checks the legislature. And there's no question, there's been a zillion polls that show wide support. There's no question about the support among the people of Mississippi. The only question is whether their legislature will represent them or somebody else like themselves. So that's, uh, that is an ongoing Uh, problem in America, and uh, half the states don't have this process to begin with. Uh, They all need it.
0: Doesn't it seem odd that you don't hear somebody making this exact case on this kind of issue and using this as a campaign issue? Do they ever use this kind of stuff?
1: Occasionally. um, In fact, a lot of times the, the person bringing initiative and referendum to a state is someone running for governor, or and then gets elected as governor and does it? Uh, it was a Florida governor. I'm not sure if it was Lawton Childs or who it was. Uh, it may have even been before him. But in the in the 70s, there was a governor ran for office in in Florida, pushed, got it through. Um, but it's been that way. I mean, California got its process because Hiram Johnson ran for governor on bringing the process to California it was wildly popular and was able to push it through the legislature. The, the change, I think, in modern times is that everything has become so left-right. But on this issue, the left and the right are united. The left and the right establishment, big labor, big, big business, the Chamber of Commerce, the teachers' unions, they're going to be walking hand-in-hand against any sort of citizen check on government, which is a sad commentary on both of those groups. The people left, right, and in between are not everybody, obviously, but overwhelmingly 60, 70, 75, 80 percent of the the people are going to favor initiative and referendum and having this check. So, uh, but it's become very difficult to get more states because the amount of money Years ago, we did a poll in Connecticut because every 10 years or 20 years, they have an automatic question on the ballot. Do you want a constitutional convention to maybe propose new amendments, write a new constitution? And these are usually not very popular because people are, you know, unless they have some overriding issue... They don't want to open up things, and they don't really want a bunch of political people meeting and, and discussing what what to do next. But there are problems, and there was a campaign pushing for initiative or referendum largely to get term limits on the Connecticut legislature. Citizens in Charge did a poll. Poll results come back in. I look at them, I think, this is wonderful. I don't know if we have enough resources to do what I'd like to do in Connecticut. But let's start looking at what we can do. Let's take this to donors. Let's, let's go. This is wonderful news. The national, not the Connecticut Teachers Union, the National Education Association, the national umbrella, big, muscled public employee union dropped $2 million on TV before we could say boo, raising all kinds of fears about the the process. They do not want any real change. And, and so it's it's become very, very difficult. You're fighting such powerful forces with so much money. And frankly, you would think the media would be on the side of the little guy. No, just so rarely. To just, it's just so rare that they would ever be in charge because they don't trust the little guy either. They don't believe in democracy. And I'm, I'm saying they It's not true for every journalist. And I apologize if you're a journalist who believes in citizen check. But I'm telling you, you're in the minority. Because again and again, they want experts. They're journalist experts, and they want to talk to politician experts. And those politicians will go to public policy experts. And all the experts, we're just supposed to be spectators. We're just spectators who cheer at the right times or don't and who are told what to do, they don't have some conception of them as servants. And I'm talking about the media here. We all know the politicians don't have any conception of themselves as servants, we serve them. I mean, I know that the rhetoric is the other way, but we all know the reality. But I'm telling folks, the reality is that most of the media doesn't have that conception, that they're giving us information so that we, in our wisdom, can make decisions. That's why, as we've talked about on this podcast again and again and again, and we'll keep talking about, they have to spin everything for us. They can't give us too much information. They don't want to cover this story because we might not take it right. And they have to to just weigh everything because they have an agenda. And they're the experts. And frankly, a lot of times they look at the public, and they don't like the way we vote and they think we're stupid because we don't agree with them. And and if that is rampant in among politicians, it's rampant among all the other psychophants who are hanging around Washington or your state capitol. And saddest of all, it is rampant in journalism, in the media, at, at the, your state capitol and in Washington. And it's a huge problem. And it's why so many people are podcasting with, whether they're saying what i'm saying or they're saying the opposite they know that they've got to find some way to reach the people because reaching them through the media has become nearly impossible it does seem weird
0: that that's not a bigger issue every race or you know what i mean it seems like that would be an issue that that would come up just how how ill-served citizens are by their representatives so you have every 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 uh Almost every place in America has a state senator and a state representative, neither of whom serve most of the people of their districts, and yet when they're challenged, it's not a huge issue.
1: Tuesday, the title really says it all: "Pardon all the non-criminals," and we got a tremendous response to this piece, uh, and it was interesting because I was a little surprised at it. You know, I didn't. It's not like I was saying anything radical. But in a sense, the public policy I was advocating is awfully radical. What we were talking about is that Governor uh, DeSantis in Florida uh, came out and said he was going to basically pardon anyone who was facing any legal jeopardy because they had violated some mask mandate. And he made the point that, look we're trying to help people. We're not going to force people to take some medicine they don't want to take or to do something they don't want to do um, when it's about their own health, and that it was, it just wasn't government's place to be mandating this and then coming down on people and trying to enforce it. Now, some people might disagree with that, but I think we all see a lot of issues. And of course, for, for libertarians like me, the drug war has always been a big mistake, and so many people caught up in it and their lives, you know, harmed if not ruined in some cases. And you know, I think these people should be pardoned, and I think we ought to end that war. And even as we're ending that war, in a lot of states with these initiatives passing, at least on marijuana, and some, and you know, psilocybin mushrooms and other things uh, passing different places in the country. You can see the change coming, but you want to make sure that the people who were caught up in the dragnet before the change don't sit in some jail cell for years. And, you know, Santis is not, is not you know, where, where I am on, on uh, the drug war, and so that's not an issue where he's going to be pardoning people. But take both of those off the table. There are a zillion other cases. Sometimes uh, it's a case where the circumstances just weren't taken into account. Other times it's a law that really should not be enforced in the way they're trying to enforce it. And, and so anybody could disagree about what should be a crime or shouldn't be a crime or what's behavior that shouldn't be, you know, come, we shouldn't come down on so hard or, or that we should. But wherever you believe someone is in jail who really isn't a criminal, they ought not be in jail. And that seems to be, I don't know how you argue with that. Oh, I don't think they're a criminal, but because of whatever circumstance, let's let them rot in jail. And I made the point that, you know, we would be better off if people in elective office, the people who have this power, governors, uh, the president, if they spent about half their time trying to help people get out from the criminal justice, you know, maze that that maze is too nice of a word. What's a really horrible word for it, but the mess that our criminal justice system has become and the draconian mess. uh, That's something that we ought to all be together on. And, and again, we may disagree on individual cases, but if you're not a criminal you ought not be rotting in jail and and I was I was uh, really uh heartened by the response and I also noticed how across the spectrum and then, you know obviously some of the people who might respond leave a comment or or on Facebook leave a comment or something I don't know where their their politics is but on friends of mine who I do know where their politics is I was really heartened by the fact that I, I saw liberal friends and conservative friends both saying this is something that needs to be done. And uh, it's it's so doable you don't have to. And, and governors don't have to convince the legislature to go along with them. There's not a lot of politicking or process. They don't have to really work hard. They've got to get some people to look through cases and find cases where this person doesn't belong in jail and help.
0: So were um, your left-leaning friends for not persecuting, like I like to put it, uh, people who wouldn't wear masks? Because the left-leaning friends I know seem to be mask heretics. They seem to be really nasty, pushy, uh, you know, yell at you. In this in, the, in the, They seem to be really, really acolytes of the forced mask wearing. I call them the masked vaxxers.
1: I think there's an element of fear there and I don't know your friends or so i just speak for some of the folks I know who who, you know or seem to have this I can't believe so and so wasn't wearing a mask there's fear and so they're frustrated they're scared and they're going to lash out at somebody who they think is making it worse not better um, but I don't think in the real world they would take the 10 steps to prosecuting that person that they would cross, you know, drive across town to serve on a jury to say you're guilty. Um, and so I think there was a certain, I think it brings out the sense that, okay, we're getting to the end of this and the goal is health and safety. It's not, you know, browbeating people. It's not criminalizing people, but it was interesting. That was really the opening of it, but the, the commentary went beyond that, and I think it was the going beyond that that people were buying into. They were thinking, wait a second, whether I agree with Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, or not on this particular one, this is something that we need to take more seriously. And the truth is, way back when Clinton uh, was leaving office and giving a pardon to Mark Rich, who had, who had done nothing to show any sort of remorse, but had given three hundred thousand dollars to the DNC, um, we talked about. It. I remember writing the uh, the, the commentary uh, about mercy and the quality of mercy, which is a, a Shakespeare phrase, um, and and how this power is only being used sparingly for cronies. And it should be used all the time for regular people who get caught up in a system that's not right. And uh, and so this is something we've been pushing for a long time. And I think there's a real audience out there who wants it. Um, so I, I do think it, it, and again, I think it's an area where people will have disagreements about an individual case or about whether violating drug laws or some other law really ought to get uh, a lot of mercy, or maybe we ought to get tougher. But I think we can all agree if you believe that this person is in jail and is not really a criminal, if if that's your belief, like like I might disagree on something. The truth is, I can't think of any case in which I think it's I think the person should be in jail, but somebody else doesn't. But let, let's say, let's say the, the uh, January sixth uh, capital riot. Now I don't want to, somebody who walked in and on uh, trespassing. I don't want to throw the book at them. But someone who came in and did some beat up some policemen. Well, if someone said let's just let's just uh, pardon them, I'd be against it. And the same is true for some of the people who were beaten up or killed during riots during the summer last summer. Uh, and and you know people call them BML B BLM uh, protests. Well, I'm not sure that they were all BLM protests. I think they were criminal people who either were associated or maybe not in the same way that the riot at the Capitol was not all Trump people. I mean, they were for Trump, just like the people at the BLM protests rioted. They must be pro-BLM. But I don't like the uh, this politics of tarring everybody who does something good because somebody involved did something bad. Uh, but, but those are cases in which it would be wrong to pardon people. It would encourage bad behavior. So, you know, there are places where I would draw the line. But whatever disagreements we have there, I think the more we raise up this idea of pardoning people, the more we will have a government that is looking to actually help, as opposed to just give some speech, say some things. And, you know, when people talk about We ought to end the drug war. If you're if you're a governor who thinks we ought to end the drug war, um, why would you not pardon people? You know, if I were to run for president, I would say, look, we are ending it because you can arrest anybody you want under the federal statutes, but I'm going to pardon them. So you're just wasting your time. And and of course, people, can you do that? Well, yes, if the people elect me and I'm telling them. And of course, I think it's always better that you tell people what you're going to do. You know, let's not surprise them, but um, so that they can weigh in and validate it and and give more legitimate authority to do it. But this is an issue that I think will be used more and more. I hope it is, and uh, and I think it has a lot of a lot of power, and I think it will have a lot of support, unless instead of you know pardoning people who deserve to be pardoned, they're pardoning their cronies. And of course, Trump. Uh, uh, pardon some people who I thought that was wonderful. He also pardoned some people that I thought you're just pardoning your crony. Um, there's a big difference between those two, and the and the public will understand that difference.
0: Now, one of the themes of the piece was was the coronavirus business. So that was that was the basic thing, and you were on DeSantis' side for t- treating people, you know, laxly for not wearing uh, mercifully for not wearing the, the mask. Um, the next piece of the week, which I guess is Wednesday's piece, Doom Still Pending, uh, was also about the end. You, you mentioned sort of that we're coming to the end of COVID. I actually think COVID's going to be with us forever. I think it's just going to take place of the flu. But here we have an interesting case of the change of policy.
1: When I say I think we're getting to the end, I'm, I'm not talking about we're getting to the end of COVID as much as we're getting to the end of the Insane governmental response to COVID. Uh, that I think we're getting to the end of people being willing to put up with lockdowns. We're getting to a point where the the virus is not going to be as scary to people because it's not going to. I don't think it's going to be spreading in the same way. And I think over time, people are going to realize, you know, this is this is not the most deadly disease that's ever existed. In fact. It's, you know, it, its uh, lethality is, is tiny compared to some other uh, viruses and diseases. And, and that, you know, in, in a sense, we're going to we're coming back to a more normal, uh, rational approach to it. But speaking of rational approaches, you know, this piece really talked about uh, Rochelle Walensky, who is a doctor and an ep- epidemiologist, I believe. And is the new head of the CDC. And of course, people may remember this was the woman who said she felt this impending doom, which it just seems to me that if you're the head of the CDC talking about feelings of impending doom, I mean, tell us what the science is. If doom is impending, tell us that. But don't tell us you feel impending doom as if it's like, you know, I'm not interested in what your feelings are. I'm interested in the science. Isn't that what we're all supposed to be following. Uh, so, you know, that was kind of silly. And of course she also did the usual, not the usual, but kind of the obnoxious, I'm talking to you as a wife, mother, daughter, you know, and, and, uh, look, talk to us. If you're the CDC, I got a mother, I've got a wife, I have daughters. I I don't need your help there. I need your help as a medical professional. So, so, you know, we, I kind of go into it with a little bit of skepticism that she's got her head in the right place. But it's also that we're, you know, we're being told things sometimes that don't sound right. And then days later, weeks later, months later, we find out, no, they aren't right. And, of course, as I said early on, as this pandemic hit, I made the point that I think we ought to be very generous in forgiving public officials for making mistakes. None of us have been through this, unless you're a hundred-something years old. And it's a new disease, a new virus. We don't know everything about it, and we're going to make mistakes. So that's, that's the way it is. However, making purposeful mistakes uh lying to us that's something altogether different and and from the very first with the masks they gave us all this garbage and and look i you know i didn't see it as garbage the first time i heard it i just was a little skeptical why we shouldn't wear masks um and and uh then we're told well We shouldn't wear them because somehow it's going to be counterproductive. You're more likely to get it because people don't know what they're doing. And then it kind of comes out what most people suspected anyway, that they're trying to protect the medical professionals to be able to get masks. But that never held up either because it was the N95 masks were already in short supply and giving a nurse or a doctor. You know, a regular mask instead of an N95 was not really the same thing. An N95 mask is going to keep aerosol germs, airborne germs out of your nose and mouth. A mask that's not an N95 mask is not going to. Um, And so anyway, we wrote early on about why are they lying to us about masks? That's a really stupid move. It's a stupid move because we ought to be told the truth. But it's no matter what your good cause for it was, once we know you're going to lie to us, we can't trust anything else you say. And in this particular latest case, we have this woman, the head of the CDC, going to Congress and testifying on Tuesday of last week, testifying that no, we need to keep masks, we need to do, we need to stay strong on wearing masks and so on, when the day before we happened to know for a fact that she signed off on ending all this mask stuff and on a new policy. Now, you can kind of understand, well, i got to testify before Congress tomorrow, and I've I've written all this testimony out, and so it seems like, you know, it'd be really tough to change it all, but you went to Congress and you testified in a way that you just knew from what you had done the day before was not accurate, that's not good. And of course, it caught people by surprise. Uh, A lot of folks who aren't so fond of the mask. And, and I have to say, personally, I had in, in 2019, I had traveled to Hong Kong and to Taiwan. I had seen a number of, I was surprised by how many people I saw on the streets there wearing masks. Well, Culturally, that's something they do. If they're sick, if they've got a cold, they're going to wear a mask when they go out. If they have uh, some sort of uh, respiratory problems, they might wear a mask to avoid pollution and other things. It's something they do. It seems to make a little sense. It may not make as much sense as they think, but it's not something that people in America do. So it's understandable that we're not going to take to it as quickly. But so I immediately thought, well, gee, maybe they're they're onto something, maybe we ought to be wearing masks. And it seemed to me that our government was in essence trying to trick us into not wearing masks so they could protect the supply or whatever. I don't like to be tricked. And I think they would have been better off, as I said in the commentary at the time, telling us the truth and asking us to do the right thing. Don't grab N95 masks, grab the next best thing you can grab. Tell us what to do. We'll rise to the occasion. And I don't mean to suggest that there's not some idiot, lunatic, evil person somewhere who won't follow good advice. But most Americans are going to do the right thing if, if you develop trust, if they can trust you. But you lie to them, it's over. So now this latest thing. So that's where I'm coming from, is that I was pushing for, wait a second, maybe these masks make a lot more sense than the government is telling us. At this point now, more than a year later, I think the masks have been almost completely I mean, if, if of any value, marginal value. And I think that just because we've all been wearing masks and COVID has surged and gone down and surged back up and and it hasn't seemed to follow whether we were wearing masks or not. so it just seems to me that it's, it's very marginal, marginal value at the same time. So, so I'm glad that they're saying, Hey, you don't need to wear masks. And of course they're saying if you're vaccinated, but it was also interesting to see so many people so wed to the idea of wearing masks that they were almost offended that we weren't going to keep doing it. And, and it just, It just goes to show there are a lot of different agendas, different philosophies, different attitudes, different phobias uh, out there. And it's why you want two things from the government in this kind of situation. You want information and the truth. And from time to time they give us information, but it seems like it's almost always spun in such a way that, that you don't know if you're getting the full information, the truthful, full. What do they What do they say when you're on the uh, witness stand? The whole, the truth. What is it? The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's it. And uh, and we're not getting that. And and so this was, this was uh, the title was Doom still pending, but uh, I think I think this pandemic has been horribly mishandled. Uh, at all levels of government, not everybody, but, but by and large. And, uh, and, and the, the, the very crux, the foundation of that mishandling has been a lack of honesty, a lack of respect and trust in the public. And when I think about how much people in public office should trust the people and how much the people should trust those in public office, It's not close. Who deserves more trust? And I think that the people in public office can trust the people of this country. And I think the people of this country, unfortunately, cannot trust uh, the folks in public office, which is sad, especially sad when you've got a pandemic, you know, a 100 year event uh, that that people need information about and need the truth about.
0: And we're just not getting it on so many levels about this disease. They're just not being honest with us. And it's not just the masks, it's that there's been a lot of disinformation yeah. and half truths. And uh, I mean, one of the ways to con people is to give a plausible idea. I mean, that's how you make a, The confidence trick works by giving a plausible notion and then getting people to latch on to it and then get them to do something not in their interest based on this plausible thing. So, the whole mass business, uh, I think, was crucial to getting us to, into getting universal vaccination. I think universal vaccination, and there's a lot of doctors who agree, is the worst possible thing to do in a, in a new epidemic. And it's not a normal vaccine, so I'm really against both all kinds of the vaccines. I like think it's a bad idea. And I don't think anybody in 2019 who would have been told what the nature of the illness really is, not what they've been hyped a bit. I don't think anybody said, oh yeah, we all need to get the, all the world needs to be engaged in experimental gene therapy. I don't think that's what would have been in the response of anybody, anybody with, with any brains whatsoever, but it is something that's been pushed and I think it's a con job. So I'm, I'm even worse. I'm even more negative than you because I think this is a confidence yes. game.
1: Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm not quite where you are, but I, but I, I see where you are and I don't I don't have a whole lot of arguments to say, oh, no, how could you possibly think that Um, I am focused because I I certainly want to travel and outside the country as well. And I suspect that I'm going to have to be vaccinated to do that. But one of the reasons I have waited to get vaccinated is that I had COVID right and The person who I got COVID from was tested, and they had it, and then I was tested afterwards for the antibodies, and I had the antibodies. And it's possible that when you have COVID, those antibodies are not as effective as this vaccine will be, and that seems to be what they're saying. But I don't feel like we're getting the full info on that.
0: I think they're lying. I, I think point blank they're lying. I don't think we can trust them on that.
1: I know uh, at least one person, Ron Johnson, who's the senator from Wisconsin, Republican senator, uh, said that his doctor told him the his antibodies from having COVID were better than the vaccine. Now, again, most of us are not medical doctors. We haven't studied anatomy and diseases and all that kind of stuff, and and of course, we know doctors are going to disagree. They're not all going to see things the same way. But I feel like there is such a rush to tell us what to do and that, oh, no, uh, those antibodies. I've heard that the antibodies only last three months or, you know, and, uh, but but that the, the vaccine, you know, somehow is it's all gone and you're safe forever. Well, neither of those seem to be true. And it certainly is possible that the natural antibodies from having had COVID are not going to be as effective as this kind of modified gene therapy type thing. That's certainly possible. But it's also possible that they are. And, and of course, we wouldn't necessarily know because it hasn't been around long enough to know for sure how long either of these works. And of course, then they started talking about we may need another booster shot for you know even after you've had two shots of the vaccine again i'm not saying geez the vaccine is crazy and you kind of think it is crazy and and more not so much that the vaccine itself that you have some scientific knowledge that it's going to you know make you grow a horn out of your head but just that boy we're sure just spreading this all over the world without having had a lot of A lot of evidence that this is exactly the thing to do because it's so new. And they didn't
0: test it on pregnant women, for instance, or even pregnant mice, for what I understand. I mean, I could be wrong on that, but there's a lot of evidence. There's a lot of anecdotes out there about women with lots of problems with their menstrual periods and there's spontaneous abortions and things like this. We'll see how this comes out. But so there's so the if you want to talk conspiracy theories, there are a lot out there. There are even major doctors who say that this looks to them like a means of depopulating the world. So I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm just saying that we, it really is an understudied set of vaccines. It's not normal vaccine procedure. It ha- behaves differently. And it was the FDA waived. So we don't have the, the people. That's one of the reasons I said about this 2019 thing. Is most people in the United States think the FDA should exist, right, and that it saves us because it makes things longer; it requires longer periods of of uh, testing of new right. medicines. Well, this has all been bypassed under the guise that there is no other treatment and it's a crisis. I don't believe it's a crisis, and I don't believe it's there's no other treatments, and I think that we've we've caught them all in both of these things.
1: That is my problem. Like I, I'm n- I'm not interested really and you know i mean i might hear oh that's an interesting conspiracy theory but let's deal with what we know and what we know is there has been there seems to have been a massive disinterest in how you treat covid um and there was all the games with what trump said which turned out to be look he's not a doctor and and he didn't say it the way that a doctor would say it but the you know the disinfectant being injected into your arm. That's not what he was talking about, but he was actually talking about a real therapy that has been used. And and turns out, you know, when you notice that there's an active animosity toward even hearing about those things, because there needs to be some super fix that fixes everything, from on high, that can be given to everyone, and then it's magic and we're, we're all better. You start to doubt. When you know you've been lied to about different parts of it, like the whole mass thing, you start to doubt stuff. And I think people are very right to doubt. And I think the, the best thing we could do from this day forward would be for President Biden to say, We are going to give people the information we have, all of it that we can possibly put out there, and we're going to stop telling them what to do and start telling them what we know as honestly and fully as we can. That's all we want from these folks. We want to know what the doctors think, what they've seen, what the studies say. And we know some of the studies are going to disagree. Tell us, tell it all to us. But stop telling us what we must do as if you have some great knowledge of everything. And you can see around the corner because we know they can't.
0: That's just absolutely important. The other thing is that I think that the reason we've been all hornswoggled, in my opinion, uh, the reason it's a confidence game, is that there is in modern states and society, a notion that I don't hold at all, and you don't hold either. And many of our audience do not hold. And that's political messianism, the idea that the government saves us that it's supposed to save us from all our problems that if we have a major problem the first thing we should do is look to government that is not my belief i think it's a dangerous belief and it's on that that the confidence game of covid-19 happened that this, this the planned yes. pandemic i don't know how deep and how weird it gets i've heard a lot of weird theories uh down to the point where the uh you know the, the belief that this was a concocted uh, gain of function, research, virus made in Wuhan and elsewhere. One of the recent things I've heard is that malaria is one of the things this covid nineteen was based on. that malaria was an important thing, and that's that could be why uh, hydrochloroquine works to the extent it does, is that malaria is one of the parts that was made into this Frankenstein monster
1: well, and and that's another point that that we have written several things talking about, early on, about gain-of-function research and about government, US government money going to that Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, and it's been amazing how disinterested the media has been in that story. And how anyone who's talked about it was immediately debunked, you know, not actually debunked, just throw the word debunked at them, um, and they were debunked because they were saying this was man-made. Well, and then it turns out, I think it was Tom Cotton, Senator from Arkansas, who basically said, I didn't say it was man-made. I said it could come from the lab. It could have come naturally from the lab. There's some <laughs> mistake. But, but the, the kind of the desire to just shut off any lines of argument that don't fit the official version of what has happened and what you need to do next is a telltale sign that you can't trust the people who are giving you the information. And, and that's just another one. And we're going to, we'll keep looking at that. I, I think it will be very interesting if we ever find out where this came from. Uh, I, I have my own suspicions, but let's find out. And I thought it was interesting. Who was it? Who said, uh, was it, was it by or someone the other day, you know, it was Fauci in his um, back and forth with Rand Paul said, Well, I'm for all for investigating. And boy, if I were in Congress, I would be pushing to have the, the most detailed, aggressive investigation into this as as possible, and not just looking to see where the virus came, but looking for uh, what what US interests what 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 money went overseas, what kind of gain of function. Look, look, we're in the middle of this. Let's pull out all the gain of function stuff. Where have we put money and what are going forward? You know, the Obama administration closed it down and then the money was going to Wuhan and and there's been a very interesting well we didn't pay for gain of function research. But there's no question that they were doing gain of function research yeah, that's and the we most were BS paying...
0: argument. That, that, Fauci's so argument ridiculous. was so BS it's it's hard to believe. Well, and,
1: and, so We need to know a lot more about that. And again, our media is not at all curious, not in the slightest bit. It's just the the mainstream media, just they're disinterested. It's not only that they're not curious, they are actively disinterested in finding out more about it.
0: Well, that's because they're pushing an agenda. As you've mentioned before, you call it the narrative, which many people use that term. And uh, there are other narratives that... uh, Play in a uh, play right now, and one of them is the race issue. And you deal with that on Thursday, Lightfoot's Dark Turn, and that's about the mayor of Chicago, right?
1: Yes, uh, uh, Lori Lightfoot, uh, mayor of Chicago, uh, black woman, first uh, black woman, first uh, gay person, as, excuse me, uh, as uh, mayor of Chicago. So she's checked a, a bunch of boxes, and that's all great. Uh, she also said she was for term limits, so I was kind of excited when she got elected. Maybe she would push to get term limits in uh, Chicago. Boy, could they use them! But she also wants journalist limits. Yes, yeah. she. <laughs> and and here is the interesting thing. So let, let's tell people what what happened. This is Lightfoot's dark turn at thisiscommonsense dot org, and she comes out and makes it clear that she will only give interviews to black and brown journalists, but not white journalists. And I I guess, you know, Asian uh, American Pacific Islander folks, I don't know, you know, supposedly uh, it's white, yellow, brown, black. Does that mean that Asians are somehow you're you're not even you're not able to ask questions either? And of course, the biggest problem with all of it, there's two. One is it's racist. To decide who can interview you according to their race, just by definition, and I know I know there's all kinds of people who argue otherwise, but I just think it's difficult to say i 'm going to not let you interview me or let you interview me according to your race and then and then try to pretend that that's not racist but um, but it's not just that it's also that mayors. Congressmen, presidents, governors, anybody who's in a position of public trust, they don't get to decide who interviews them and they can refuse to be interviewed. They can do all kinds of things. But the the beauty of this story uh, is that the Hispanic journalist in Chicago who had a scheduled interview told her he would not attend, would not interview her unless she ended this policy. That To me, that's one of the most beautiful things that happened in the last week. I also read, and we may do a follow-up on this piece, uh, because I, I found out today, there's an association of black journalists who, is, who have come out strongly against her policy. In other words, they're recognizing this isn't really about somehow opening up the process and getting more diversity. This is about trying to control the media and how they cover you. And I think this has backfired badly on her. Um, and this is another one that I was a little surprised that, uh, you know, the response we got was just a, a bigger response than we usually get in terms of emails and, and comments left at the website or on Facebook and, and other places. And uh, I, I think this sort of thing, it's it's like uh, we did a piece on Oakland who had a program to help give money to poor people, but only poor people of color. not if you are white and poor, tough. Um, and I think people when it gets to that point, it's really hard. I mean we I think most people recognize this country has made some terrible moves has, you know, we've had, we had slavery from before being a country, uh, for another, what, uh, almost a hundred years, not quite 80, whatever it was, but I mean, what a horrible institution. In fact, um, I, when I think of slavery, one of the things that always bugs me is, is the way that this country has treated John Brown, who I think should be a national hero. I, I think we ought to have a, a, we should have statues of John Brown around the country. Um, we ought to have a John Brown Day. You know, let's make another three-day weekend. Um, <laughs> who could be against that? But of course, that's not what happens. We were all taught in school. Uh, I don't know if they're still teaching this in school, but that he was a crazy man, a madman who killed a lot of people in different fights between the, you know, pro-slavery and anti-slavery forces, and in, in uh, you know, different in Missouri and Kansas and so on. Um, but slavery is a horrible institution and I don't know how you find him at fault for taking up arms against it. It seems to me that's the sort of thing that you would be forced to take up arms against. Um, and we all know why there's not a national holiday and a bunch of statues to John Brown is because the government doesn't want anyone to get the idea that it's, you know, sometimes justified to take arms against them. Uh, but anyway, I, that was a little tangent.
0: We should devote a whole podcast to that
1: one because there's a lot there. There um, is a lot there, and it, and it never gets discussed. And one of the reasons it's important is because it's easy, I think, for people to look back and kind of not see any of the specific human individuals involved and to say, well, whites didn't do anything to protect these slaves, and somehow, and of course, the idea that somehow generations later, somebody who wasn't involved at all is somehow guilty because of their skin color is ridiculous. But the truth is, yes, they did. John Brown was put to death for doing what he did. And he deserves that recognition. And I want white folks, and everybody to recognize that, you know what? There are people who step up against injustice, and, and to cherish that, and to reward that, instead of hiding it, because it makes it seem like nobody did anything. Nobody did anything. Well, you know what? There were more people killed in the Civil War than in World War II and World War One combined. World War II, World War I, Vietnam, Korea combined.
0: More Americans, more American
1: soldiers. More Americans. Yes, not more of everybody, but more American soldiers. And so, so people did do something about it. And it doesn't mean that it wasn't horrible, but it does mean that this sort of all white people are this and all black people are this and is, is not correct and stupid. Uh, stupid because of what it leads us to.
0: Yeah, if it weren't for white abolitionists, we would still have slavery in America.
1: Right, right.
0: The whole racial element of this doesn't make any sense.
1: And the truth is that there were white abolitionists doesn't make me any better today as a white person, but that there were white slave owners doesn't make me any worse. I wasn't involved on either side.
0: Yeah, that's correct. But,
1: but we have to recognize there were different sides and that it right. wasn't this monolithic white black mm-hmm. thing that, you know, that, that we're, we're kind of led to believe these days.
0: Yeah, the, the the amount of lack of historical perspective by Americans today is astounding. Uh, but we're talking now about, in a sense, we've backed our way into secession. Uh, I mean, <laughs> oh, backed our way, <laughs> and f- on Friday we
1: had you had a piece about secession. Uh, kinda. <laughs> yes. Um, well, and and this is very interesting. A number of counties in Oregon, in eastern Oregon, which is very rural, <laughs> a long way from Portland. But not as far away from Portland as they'd like to be. And uh and these counties voted to leave Oregon and join Idaho. And of course, what's what's driving that? Two things. One, they're more rural folks who feel more comfortable with Idaho, which is more rural. Uh And they can't stand Portland, and they don't want to be ruled by what they view as crazies. And the truth is, you'd kind of think that the people of Portland might not think that they're so great out there in in the rural east of of Oregon. So what do you do when you can't get along? Well, you part. You go your separate ways. And this, it's secession. Of course, the way this works, uh, if... Oregon agreed to give up these counties, which is not the way it should work. The people who are in those counties should be able to decide. But but the way it works under our constitutional system is that Oregon could say, okay, and then Idaho could say, okay, we'll take you. And it probably would mean that Idaho would gain a congressional district and Oregon would lose one. And that might be why Oregon would say no. And it might be why Idaho would say yes. But even if both of those states agree, it's got to be approved by the Congress. So this is a long, involved process. But it just strikes me that any time you've got people who overwhelming that, you know, if you had an election that was 51-49, you might kind of say, gee, was that just, you know, it rained that day. There were different things. But these these were clear votes in favor of leaving. It wasn't a big surprise to me. I don't think it was a big surprise to other people. And it's we ought to have an attitude that if you'd rather be over there than over here, then you're free to go over there. And, and I'm not going to force you to stay here. And I have a rule. It's a simple rule about secession. People should be free to secede unless they're seceding so they can keep slavery. Uh, And and we could expand that. Unless they're seceding so that they can kill some people. Unless they're seceding so that they can rape and pillage some people. In other words, if they're seceding because they want to form a different government, if they want to be a part of a different society, a different state, a different nation, they ought to be able to do it. Um, and, you know, I, it's sometimes easier to look abroad. Uh, I, I, we haven't done a script on, on what's happening in China and threats against Taiwan and what's happened in Hong Kong and stuff in probably a couple of weeks. Um, but you think about China constantly threatening Taiwan. They're going to invade. You, you belong to us. And, of course, there's all kinds of different, you know, if, if you know some of the history you can you find people who will say, well, that really has always been a part of China. Well, that's not actually true. And then you'll find other people say, well, the U.S. has agreed in the one China policy, and that is true. And there's different caveats and this and that. And a friend of mine sent me a, a column that Pat Buchanan had written uh, maybe a month or two ago where he asked the question, who does Taiwan belong to? And I, thought, and I thought, and he was making the argument we should not be involved, and that in essence this has already been decided and that they belong to China. But of course, let's just rationally think about it for a second. Who does Taiwan belong to? Well, I don't need to know anything about China or any you know, uh, foreign policy or any corollary to any treaty. Taiwan belongs to the Taiwanese. Taiwan belongs to the people who live there. Eastern Oregon belongs to the people who live in Eastern Oregon, and if they want to go be part of Idaho, then you might be sad they're going to go, but say good luck because that's their right. And and we sometimes see, you know, especially if we don't like this country or do like this country, that you know we ought to be, you know, they ought to be free and have self determination. But the truth is. Everybody ought to have self-determination. And every, I mean, every block in America ought to be self-determination. And, you know, you could get to a silly degree, but think of what the alternative is. The alternative is you have to stay and be part of this society, whether you like it or not. The alternative is China gets to enslave you because the U.S. and China agreed. I mean, if you're Taiwanese, does that sound like that makes sense? I don't I don't think so. Um, And if you're in eastern Oregon or you're in northern California, uh, you're being you realize you've got no power where you are. And isn't the whole point to empower people to be able to control their own lives? That's what I thought the whole point of freedom is. I'm pretty convinced it is. That is the point. And so. When we look at these things, well, or or look at DC, should DC become a state? Well, I don't think so because I don't want to give them two senators, frankly. But should DC get representation in Congress? Well, I'm I'm fine with that. I think there's a lot of different ways you could do it. But you they have could, some representation in Congress right they, now. They do. They have, but not in Congress. They actually, it's interesting. They they talk about they have electoral load.
0: college votes. That's what they have.
1: Yes. They do have representation in the federal government. So it's not taxation without representation, although that concept can't be taken to some, you know, when you go overseas and, and, you know, uh, buy a cup of coffee in London, you got to pay some sales tax. That doesn't mean you get a vote on who's going to be the next MP. I mean, these sorts of things are we take to a silly degree and they stop meaning it. What we ought to look at is ways you want to be empowered. How can we empower you? Now, if you want to be empowered in a way that's going to completely overnight sweep, make sweeping changes to the the government, well, you can understand how people aren't going to want to do that. I mean, uh, the Democrats could say D.C. is a state and Biden could say, okay, of course, there are some constitutional problems with that. But. There are ways to do it and And I think one way to do it would be to basically uh, take a lot of of d c and put it in Virginia or Maryland. Of course, the thing is, I don't think Virginia or Maryland necessarily wants it. Um, but there it might be just to make a compromise and say, "We'll let the d c uh, delegate be a voting member of congress. there could be there could be all kinds of things possible. What I'm suggesting is, why don't we look for ways that people can be empowered? And I can understand why there may be pushback in different ways, but I don't understand this attitude that it always has to be the way it was and that you could never change a boundary line, uh, that we could never have any state secede. Look, if they're seceding for a reason that they don't want to be part of us anymore and they're not seceding to somehow do bad things to the people who live there, then I'd hate to lose you know, New Hampshire or Washington state, but if the people of the, those states wanted to go somewhere else, well then, would we really send troops and say, no, 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 you have to by force stay part of this country? I don't think so. I think, that's, I, I think that, that turns the whole idea of freedom on its head. Well, there we are. End of a program. Hot dog. Well, you know what I'm gonna do now? I'm going to Disney World. Oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not actually going into Disney World, but we're just going to go. Uh, I'm, I'm in Orlando. I came down for a meeting, uh, brought my, my youngest and, and uh, the missus, and we're going to go check out some of uh, downtown Disney. Uh, we don't have to buy a ticket even, but can go spend money. They're so nice. They'll let you come spend money without even charging you a fee.
0: I've heard that said about Disney before. <laughs> okay very good talk to you later and this is the end of this week in common sense thanks buddy go to this is for paul jacob five days a week on the weekends this podcast in both audio and video form the audio is hosted on soundcloud the videos go up on youtube and each episode of common sense with paul jacob at this is common is provided in addition to the web page as a PDF for easy share. So go to this as